Hi, this is Van Cochran. The message today is called Foundations Part 2, and in it, I talk about the need for more than simply an intellectual process in order to grasp spiritual truth. The fact that there really is a necessary element of supernatural revelation that we must have. With that in mind, I share why I personally believe the Bible, and then talk about the importance of keeping a good conscience and a growing relationship with Jesus in order to keep from stumbling in our faith. Good morning, everyone. Hey, before we um, go into the message, I want to let you know that this, uh, this is the week that we're going to send our team off to Australia to help launch Sockham there. So I'm going to have Luke Hazelmeyer and Jamie Hazelmeyer and Micah Turnbow come to the front right now, please. The three of you come up. Yeah, let's welcome up here. Just right here. You know Luke and Jamie, your husband and wife. Luke, uh, all three of them are on our staff. Uh, Luke is actually going to be part of the worship team in, uh, for the Australia National Conference, and so that's kind of an extra duty he's just taken on. But all three of, yeah. <laughs> all three of them, all three of them are just very highly qualified to represent us in this endeavor and to go and to support Putty and uh, the, the whole Sockham ministry as they go to um, go to Australia. Jamie, you've seen Jamie up here ministering at the end of services, and Micah leads our prophetic ministry. So what I want to do right now, we want to pray for them, and I'm going to ask some of our staff and others who want to come up and lay hands on them to come up, come up right now, please, would you? Just, just step up. Would you guys step out there some? There you go. Perfect. Just come up and gather around them, lay hands on them. Uh, this is important because what we're doing right now is we're blessing them with the anointing that's on this church body. And as they go, they're going to go representing us and carrying with them what God's deposited here. And so we, we pray for them right now to bless them in this. So uh, Holy Spirit, we just thank you for these three. Thank you for Luke and Jamie. Thank you for Micah. And we pray for anointing on them that uh, they would be able to hear your voice and sense your presence in this whole trip. Lord, let them sleep well and rest well and just give their bodies just the right adjusting, adjusting ability for the time change and all of the jet lag and all of that. We just pray no jet lag. We pray for clarity of thought the whole way. We pray for supernatural encounters with other people who need you. Lord, it's not just the destination, but it's the journey. It's the trip. And so I, I pray that you'll give each of them multiple encounters with people on this trip that you've prepared for that exact moment. Give them words of knowledge. Give them uh, gifts of healing to pass on to others. And in Australia, Lord, use them. Use the whole team that's going there to uh, release Sockham to Australia with just an explosive force that will change that country and that entire continent, Lord. We, we thank you for the, uh, the nation and the continent of Australia. Thank you, God, that the vineyard's been there for years. And we just bless that whole movement and pray that it would increase even more and more. And Luke, uh, Jamie, Micah, we, we release to you everything that's in the heart of this church to carry with you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 
SOKM is a school of kingdom ministry, S-O-K-M. And some people, I, I started off pronouncing it SOKM, but it's not SOKM, it's SOKM. <laughs> school of kingdom ministry, it originated in Champaign, Illinois. It's led by Putty Putman. Uh, every year he does the, all the teaching fresh every year because he's constantly growing in these things. And we have School of Kingdom Ministry here at our church. It's our sixth year, is that right? And it's not too late to, to join. Is it too late to join Sockham? It is too late. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, next year, okay. But the School of Kingdom Ministry is something we want everybody in the church to go through. Anybody who aspires to leadership, you have to go through Sockham because it will, you, you might even know a lot of this stuff in Sockham. Some people might, but it's going to indoctrinate you and, and, and culturate you. It's going to bring you into our culture in a way that we know then that, uh, that, that we have um, a common, common cause. So it's, it's something that's really huge here. All right, before we get into the message, I had a joke for you, actually two. Oh, see you're laughing already. Someone said once, whether they're laughing with you or laughing at you doesn't make any difference as long as they're laughing, so. All right, so there was this boss of a major corporation, it's late on a Friday night, and he goes into the office and there's only one junior um, executive there, secretaries, everyone's gone. He walks up to the um, shredding machine and he says, do you know how to work this dad blamed thing? He said, I, I can't get it to work. And this junior executive says, sure I do. And he flipped the switch and put the paper in it and it chewed it all up. And the boss says, oh great, all I need is three copies. <laughs> okay. One more, one more. Guy's checking out uh, at the grocery line, and the checkout person says, do you want your milk in a bag? And he said, no, just leave it in the carton. <laughs> All right, so okay, 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 thank you. No, no pity laughter is needed, okay? All right, so Father, um, we just, we open our hearts to you right now. We want to hear from you. We want what you have for us, in Jesus' name, amen. So last week I, I talked about the foundation of the faith and how many believers today are examining their faith and, and going through a process that a lot of people call deconstruction where they're tearing their faith apart or just aspects of the faith of what they believe about what the Bible teaches and, and coming up in some cases with some very non-orthodox viewpoints or in other cases just abandoning the faith altogether. And one of the things that I emphasized last week that the foundation of our faith is not in an intellectual argument. It's not in me looking at something and saying, does this make perfect sense or is it intellectually tenable and leaving it at that. But it is in relationship with Jesus Christ himself. That's the foundation. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3.11, the apostle Paul said, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So since we're talking about knowing and understanding spiritual truth, we have to recognize that a purely intellectual approach to it is insufficient. We're not saying that um, the intellect is bad or that it's wrong, but the intellect alone can't grasp spiritual truth unless 
It is being pursued with a heart that says, whatever the cost, wherever it might lead me, I want truth. Whatever, whatever that means, because I want to serve the God of truth. Jesus said, if we have that heart, then we will know truth. John 7, 17, he said, anyone who is willing to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. And he meant by that, by merely my own, he meant merely just a human teaching. And so Jesus says there that if, if you have the right heart, that the pursuit then will lead you to the truth. So we're not saying that God's way ignores or disregards intellect. It doesn't. Intellect is something God gave us. It's a, it's, it's a good thing and so many blessings in our lives are all of, without intellect we couldn't communicate in fact. But what, what, when we're understanding spiritual truth and who God is, it's more like we're going, not, we're not ignoring intellect, we're going beyond intellect. And, and not in the sense that we're leaving intellect behind. It's more in the sense that uh, you have basic math and then you have algebra. Algebra goes beyond basic math, but it doesn't ignore basic math. Without basic math, you couldn't have algebra. And so without intellect, you couldn't have spiritual understanding, but intellect alone is not enough. And so it takes the Holy Spirit enlightening our minds and teaching us and, and, and he will do that if we have the right heart. So 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5 says this. Apostle Paul said, My message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power, of the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And when he says uh, demonstration of power, he's talking about an actual encounter with the living God. That's the goal. And, and that's where our faith rests. But Paul still spoke words. And that's intellect. He used his intellect to describe truth, but it wasn't describing truth alone. It was describing truth with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that opened people's minds up so that their faith would actually rest in relationship with the living God and not just in um, someone's ability to fashion a clever argument about who God is or about what a person should believe. Now my goal in this, today's message I think is as much as anything, is to help us all know how can I avoid this? How can I avoid uh, stumbling into a crisis of faith like I described last week? There, there are different ways that people encounter a crisis of faith. Last week I shared in 1992 how I, one night on a, on a retreat all by myself there's, these doubts just crashed into my mind and I couldn't shake them. And, and it, it took me the full, full night and the rest of the next day before I was able to restore just real solid confidence and even more solid confidence in who God is and who Jesus is. When that happened, that was spiritual warfare. That it wasn't the part, it wasn't a result of a process or something in my heart that led me to this. It was just spiritual warfare. And I believe it was because I was on the cusp of entering into the fullness of the Holy Spirit, which happened about a year later. And I think the enemy saw that coming and he was taking his last big shot at trying to derail my faith. 
And so it can be just spiritual warfare like that that happens. But it can also be other things that bring about a kind of a reevaluation or, or a, what I would call a crisis of faith. Sometimes children grow up in the church and they reach the age of 18, 19, 20, and then they ask themselves, they think, well, I've just accepted this. Is this really personal to me? And, and that child goes through kind of a reevaluation, a, a, a form of deconstruction, a form of crisis of faith. Now, I want to say this. I don't think that has to happen. I don't think that's a necessary rite of passage for every child that grows up in the church. I think we can teach them to have a living, real relationship if we're open-hearted with them about our faith and if we listen to their questions and we don't hush them up or anything like that. There, there are, we, can, we can help them to avoid having that, but sometimes that is what happens. And then sometimes a crisis of faith comes because a person faces a horrible tragedy and they're just left in the wreckage of that tragedy asking God, where were you? And they're just filled with so much pain and angst that, that they just have questions that are crying out to God with these questions. And the, the last one that I see as a root of this that I really want to talk about today is more the heart issue and the fact that if, if it takes more than just intellect and if I have to be willing to obey God, that's a heart issue. And Jesus said, if I, if I have a heart that says I want truth no matter what, I want to know what is the truth about God so I can serve him no matter what, then that's a heart issue. And what are some of the things that can mess up our hearts? And, and I say this not just for the person maybe going through a crisis of faith, but for all of us, just so that, so that we can say, well, here, here's, how, here's how I'm going to live my life, because I, I don't want to face that. I don't want to slip into a crisis of faith. And there is, it is a gradual slipping into in this case, in the heart case. It's not something that just happens suddenly like it did with me that night. And um, we'll talk a little more about that later. But the heart, First Peter 1, I think it's the very last slide I gave to you, First Peter 1. He talks there about some issues of the heart and uh, if, if we get that up on the sl- screen, that's okay. I'm, I'm just going totally out of whack with the uh, outline I wrote this week, okay? So everything might not be up on the screen, and that's okay. But here in Second Peter 1, Peter says this in verse 5. He says, for this very reason, he says, because you've been given a divine nature, because you're a new creation, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's a verse that I didn't put on the screen. Listen to this. If anyone does not have them, He is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Verse 10, therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never never fall or you will never stumble. And so what he's saying here is if we have these things in increasing measure in our lives and we are growing in a daily basis in relationship with Jesus, then we're not going to stumble into a crisis of faith. 
And so th- this provides for us some real clarity, I think. I, I remember um, when, I, when, I be- when I was a little boy, my dad and I were very close. And, and uh, when I, as I grew into my teenage years, we kind of drifted apart. And he had a hard time expressing his emotions. And I think that was part of it. He was a, a World War II veteran, grew up in the depression. And a lot of guys of that generation were really, found it difficult to express emotion. And so I decided when I had boys, I thought this. I thought, okay, I don't want to get there. I don't want to be 20 or 30 and or have them be 20 or 30 and I can't hug them. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to hug them every day. I'm going to tell them every day I love them. And that way, we'll, it will never We'll just never get there where there's this big gap. So every time I see my sons, I hug them and I tell them I love them. And what he's saying here in this passage is, if every day you focus on intimacy and relationship with Jesus, and every day you keep that up and you keep growing in your faith and in your in godly character, as he's describing here in 1 Peter, then you're never going to come to a time where you're going to stumble. And so there, there is this call of God that says to us, just keep your daily life right. You know, just keep your daily life right. That's all you need to do. Focus on today and keep your daily life right. And if you do that, then you'll just keep walking in truth all the way through and you'll grow and become more and more and more intimate with Jesus. I thought it was interesting that Luke, in the introduction to worship, said something very similar to this. When he said, think back to the first time God spoke to you. I didn't tell him I was going to say this today. So this is really a point I think that God wants us to get. Because he said here in this passage, if I'm not, if these things are not growing in my life, then what does he say? It's pretty strong. He says, I'm nearsighted and blind. I'm nearsighted and blind. And then what? And then he says, I've forgotten that I've been cleansed from my past sins. I've forgotten what God's done in my life. And when I forget that, then I become susceptible to slipping into heart, heart space that makes it easy for me then to enter into a crisis of faith. And so this, this is so crucial that we remember what it is that, uh, that brought us to faith in Christ. And I, you know, I wanted to share with you this morning um, some some truths about myself, but um, some of my background, I really wanted just to talk to you about why I believe the Bible, okay? And, um, and it really flows with all of this. You know, there are, a lot of, um, there are a lot of historical and geological discoveries that would support the Bible. For instance, uh, the Bible talks about the universe expanding 2,500 years before science discovered that the universe was expanding, Okay very clearly talks about the expanding universe. Um, When they excavated Jericho, they found ancient Jericho. For years, um, people that were opposed to the Bible said, well, the walls couldn't have fallen down flat, like it says in Jericho, because that would have meant they fell down outward, and walls don't fall down outward. When they crumble, they crumble straight down into a heap. Well, when they excavated Jericho, they found out that the walls of Jericho had fallen completely flat, just straight outwards flat, exactly as the Bible would said. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls support the authenticity of the texts and the, the age of the texts. So there are a lot of things like that that support the Bible, but that's not why I believe the Bible, okay? And, 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 I, and I hope that's not why you believe the Bible. 
The reason I believe the Bible is because the message it brings changed my life. Really comes down to that. When I heard this message and I believed it, my life changed. My life changed. And for, for you to hear me say that, you might think, well, yeah, you're a pastor. Of course, you probably grew up. You're just this good kid your whole life and went to seminary and, and on and on. But that's not, that's not the truth at all. I didn't come to know the Lord until I was 20, almost 21 years old. And for those couple of years, few years prior to that, I lived a pretty reckless life. And when I went to college, I pledged a fraternity that at the time I pledged it, it was on probation, and they had had their fraternity house taken away from them because of drugs and fighting and extreme disrespect to other students on the campus. And so, um, so when I pledged it, was all, that fraternity was already in trouble. I was right in the middle of all of it for a year, for one year. I, I, uh, that's where I learned about LSD and started taking acid. And for that, that, that year, every time I could get my hands on it, I did it. I never did anything stronger than that. And I know there are people, I'm sure, in this room that have and would make what I experienced sound like child's play. So I would say I was worse than some, and there were some worse than me if you have to make a scale. And that's not a moral scale, but just, you know, just as far as life experience goes. But uh, just, just a few things to share with you. Um, I had one friend I hadn't seen for a year. And when the last time I saw him, I was lifting weights and I was in great shape. He walked up to me and he said, Van, he said, what happened to you? He said, Are you, have you been sick? Have you been in the hospital? He said, he said, you look horrible. And I didn't realize it. I didn't realize I had lost all this weight. I didn't realize what my face looked like. And that, and that was a real wake-up call for me when this guy just expressed his real deep concern because I looked so horrible. Um, I had a good friend that was a drug dealer, the biggest dealer on campus, and he asked me to join him in business. And, um, you know, I was in the whole thing for fun. It was a party to me. I, you know, if it was fun and exciting and a little bit risky and reckless, then I was for it. I looked at that and I thought, this is not only too much work, but it's just too much risk. I don't want to go to jail. And so it tells you I had some limits, and my friend did go to prison a year or so later. But um, things like that were going on in my life. And, well, at one point, I was in the middle of a brawl on a street, a street brawl after a basketball game or a, a wrestling match, I can't remember which. And um, I, I was actually the one that started it. Everybody's there. And there's all this tension. I threw the first punch. And then someone grabbed me from behind and was pulling me. And I turned and I just shoved the person. As I was shoving them, I saw it was a police officer. And I just shoved him as hard as I could. And he stumbled back. I don't know if he fell down or not, but I ran. I just found a little cubby hole to hide in and cr crouched down into it for an hour until I knew no one was looking for me. But... Um, that, that, was, that, that was my life. I was empty, I was lost, I was angry, I was mean-spirited, and it's hard for me to imagine that now. But I flunked out of the school, out of college because of it. And um, as I was flunked out, I went back home, and I'm living at home, and I didn't learn this till later, but my dad was on the brink of kicking me out of the house because I was continuing that lifestyle even though I was living at home. One night I had a dream 
And in this dream, I was standing in my backyard, and Jesus came down out of the sky. And he came down, he didn't touch the ground, but he came down three, four feet off the ground, and he just looked at me, and he said, I saw you last night, and I know what you were doing. It was not long after that that I turned the TV on one night and Billy Graham was on. And I didn't want to listen to it. I went, you know, that was back in the days when you had to turn the dial. And we had all of 10 channels. Big, we were big time. I'd grown up with three channels and antenna. Um, but um, I switched the whole way around and nothing else on, so I sat back and listened to him. And as I listened... And, and, and heard the message of the gospel, which I had heard previous to that, but I heard the gospel message, and I thought, I need this. This is now. This is right now. And all I can say is I felt conviction of my sin, and it felt like when I knew the state police were looking for me. And there were times when I knew that was true. And, um, and I, I just, I came to a point where I just said, okay, God, I've got, I just got to submit my heart to you. And I prayed right there to receive Jesus. And everything changed. My heart changed. I wasn't angry anymore. I mean, I, I quit doing drugs right away, but I mean, I'm not saying everything changed instantly, but I changed. Uh, I was forgiven. The guilt was gone. All the pressure and the, uh, like I had tried to quit all that stuff before. I knew my lifestyle was just terrible. And I had different times. I had sworn after I did acid. The next day I'd say, I'm never doing that again. This is horrible. But then you just, you just find it again and you do it again. And, and I tried to quit and I couldn't. But when I came to know Jesus, I had something so much bigger and so much more precious and so much better in my life that I just quit. And from, that, from then on, I've been growing in my relationship with Jesus. But all I have to do is look back on that and say, how can I not believe the Bible? How can, I mean, I can't say for you, but for me, how can I not believe the Bible? It changed me when I believed it. And, and, and I think ultimately that's the only reason anybody believes the Bible. Is when I encountered that message, it rocked my world. It changed my life. It put me on a new course, on a new path. I was cleansed of my sin, forgiven, and freed. And when you, when you recognize that... When you recognize that, you understand why Peter said you have to remember that you were cleansed from your sins, because that, that gives you the whole foundational piece of it there. And so, but, but this whole idea of, of, of people that are drifting from the faith, and, and I'm not talking about people, I'm talking about people that have worshiped beside us. And I say that in a broad sense of the church body. People who have worshipped, pe people who have experienced God's presence and prayed for others and seen God work and shouted with joy. And, and they're looking at their faith and they're, they're concluding that, that it's insufficient and they can't find reason to believe it. And, and I come back to this, that relationship with Christ and a heart connection with Christ is the key. It's the key thing, remembering how you entered into that. And then growing in that relationship daily, just like hugging my sons every time I, every day, every time I see them now, so that we never get out of the habit, so that I never have to get back into the habit. And so this whole idea, well, Acts 16, 14 says this, speaks of Lydia. 
and it says, one of them was Lydia, who worshiped God, and as she listened, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. Now, she was an Old Testament worshiper already, but she still needed God to open her heart. And so this is where we come to, she was listening to Paul's message, she's processing the intellectually what she's hearing, and at the same time her heart is ready and willing to say, God, if this is true, I want it. And because of that, God's able to open her heart to see that this is true. And that is the key thing for us to remember because that, that is what le- that, that's what engages us with Jesus and that's what keeps us engaged with him. But something that can spoil the heart is the conscience. All right, the conscience can spoil our hearts. And we see this in 1 Timothy 1.19. Apostle Paul said, fight the good fight. He said, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, there are probably other ways the heart can be impacted. I know there are, but I think conscience is a huge part of this whole picture. And the word conscience, the conscience is the inner part of a person that's kind of like your moral compass. It directs you, it speaks to you. The word conscience actually means a a knowing from the outside or a knowing from beside. And so the conscience, it seems like almost like it's someone standing beside you speaking to you. Your conscience does, but it's really part of you. It is how God speaks to us. He speaks to us through our conscience. But here's what happens with the conscience. If my conscience is bad, and and he said keep a good conscience, like have you ever smelled an old carton of milk? Okay, it smells bad, doesn't it? Is it it just kind of like neutral bad, or if you drink it, what's going to happen? It's bad for you. It doesn't just smell bad. It is bad. It'll make you sick. And a bad conscience will make you sick spiritually. Um, I think one of the main ways is offense. Our conscience gets spoiled. One of the key ways is through taking up an offense. In fact, Ephesians 4 says this. It says, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words... There's a, there's a sense of anger can be righteous, it can be right, it can be good. But if I hold on to anger, then it becomes bad after one day. It spoils after one day. It's kind of like manna in the Old Testament. If they kept the manna that God gave them, the bread from heaven, the next day it was spoiled. If I hold on to anger one day, it spoils overnight. And it becomes bitterness. And it, it gives the devil a foothold in my life, it says. So... The way it distorts my conscience is this. If I take up an offense against someone or on behalf of someone else, my conscience is going to be saying, hey, wait a second, you've got to forgive that person. Wait a second, you don't have all the information there. You don't know what really happened between the two of them. Don't, don't form a judgment on that relationship. Don't take up a cause against that person. My conscience is telling me that. Well, if, if I'm going to hold on to the offense, what do I have to do about my conscience? I have, to, I have to quiet it. And the way I quiet it is by convincing myself that I am justified in my offense. You know, I've, I'm, what they did to me was so wrong, I am so mad at them, and I have the right to be mad at them. And what that does is, see, the conscience does operate on the basis of the information we give it. 
to some degree. And so I'm feeding it this wrong information, but I'm also yelling louder in my heart and mind that I'm justified in this, and my con- the voice of my conscience diminishes. And then my conscience itself becomes spoiled so that it isn't able then to speak to me in, in the clearest way that I need it to and to keep me, to direct me when it comes to truth and to morality and to relationships with other people. And so if, if, if I justify an offense, and the roots of offense can be many, but I think in this, in this context, if I'm offended by another Christian, another believer that said something hurtful or painful to me and I'm I'm holding a grudge against them or who didn't fulfill their word to me or who was self-righteous and judgmental or I see Christians and I have this picture of Christians that are self-righteous and judgmental and so I become very self-righteous and judgmental towards them and I judge them for their judgmentalism and my conscience becomes spoiled. Or possibly leaders. Sometimes we look at leaders and we say, well, how dare that person? I'm as smart as that person. I'm better than that person. I should be leading them, not them, me. That can happen too. A church culture that's legalistic, that tells us black and white things that are not really black and white. And when we grow up in a culture like that or when we live in a culture like that, we take on this sense of judgment and self-condemnation that then we project to others. Or someone shared this with me the other day, that if, if all we do is teach young people sex is wrong, don't have sex. Sex is bad. You start, start that about the time they're old enough to understand something about it, and you tell them that for years, and then they grow up and they say, whoa, wait a second, sex isn't that bad. What did you mean it was wrong, it was bad, it was evil? And if, if we do that, but we don't teach the positive side. See, that's destructive. When all we say to our kids is, don't do that, that's wrong. But we don't say why. Don't do that. Save that for marriage because it's going to be a beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous, awesome thing in marriage. Don't spoil it before marriage. Then then you're giving them the positive side. But if all we do is give the negative side, then it creates a reaction in the person that then eventually comes to the point that says, well, you know, if, if, if that's not true, then how do I know anything's true? If you lied to me about that, you, didn't, you held back the truth on that, how, maybe I should question this too. Does that make sense? So um, other ways, conscience, um, one way is a misunderstanding of love and compassion. Maybe I have a friend who's living a, outside the Bible's teaching on morality or some other key element of biblical truth, and they're a good person, and I love them. And, and they, they might even feel judged and condemned because they read things in the newspaper or they see things on TV or maybe they've gone to a church that's judgmental and condemning and they come away feeling judged and condemned. And you just want to love them. You just want to have compassion for them. And, and so you start rethinking that area of Scripture and, and, re, and, and, um, and, and breaking it down and deconstructing what you believe about that thing just to try to help your friend feel better. And, to, and, and you disguise that as compassion. And it feels like compassion, but it really, it goes, compassion that is, uh, that is misdirected becomes very destructive. That's in, first, in Philippians 1.9. I showed you this verse a few weeks ago, in fact. He, he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with inside knowledge and all discernment or wisdom. And so love and compassion have to flow with truth. 
And we, we can never give up truth for the sake of compassion. You know, in the converse, you don't give up compassion for the sake of truth. They always go hand in hand. But if I want to say, well, in order to show compassion, I have to ignore this truth, then that's not real love or compassion. The two have to go together. And so these are all ways that our hearts can be offended and, um, and, and our consciences can be spoiled. And I think the key here is just humble myself uh, forgive the offender, ask forgiveness for holding a grudge, don't be offended for other people, don't take up responsibility for other people's lives or trying to make your decisions based upon what you think is going to, is, is going to um, relieve them of, of pain. Not that you don't want to relieve them of pain, I don't mean that, but you can't do that at the expense of truth. It's truth with love and compassion. And so one other aspect I want to end this with is this. I think another key thing that's missing in our culture today that will help us all is the relationship, not just with Christ, growing daily relationship with Christ, but relationship with spiritual parents, mothers and fathers. And my generation never talked about that. I had people that would function as a mother, spiritual mother or father in my life, but we never identified that. And, and we, we didn't honor it or value it. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4, 15 and 16. He said, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And so we should not take lightly spiritual fathers and mothers in our lives. And whether you would call them that or not, look back to their lives. And, and, if, you're in a, and if you're in a point of crisis or doubt, Get in touch with who you would consider to be your spiritual mother or father. Even if you don't feel free to tell them the crisis you're facing, just get in touch with them and ask them to pray for you and, and honor them because that, that gives our hearts this settled foundational feel that we need. And in our culture today, this orphan spirit is so prevalent and it's so much an attack of the enemy that people feel like orphans, which leaves us without anchors. It leaves us without spiritual, without, without any footing underneath us. And so I would say this for anybody that can identify the, a key spiritual mother or father in their life, this week, contact them. Uh, remember, we had, um, oh, who was the guy we had here? Leif. Leif. Yeah, Leif. Leif, Leif Hetland. And um, Leif said he contacts his spiritual, he texts his spiritual father every day. He said, I send him a text just to remind myself that I'm a son. He said, it gives my heart peace to know I, I'm in a, rela- I'm, I, I'm a son. And, and it shows me where I fit. And we need to know where we fit. You need to know there's a heritage. There, the, way, the way we destroy history today and we're looking back on his history and we're saying, well, history is bad because those people weren't as smart as we are today. By the way, every generation has what's, what I would call generational hubris, meaning my generation is so much more advanced than the previous one. We have this wisdom and insight that the last generation just did not have. And certainly 200 years ago, oh, we are so much more advanced than them. But then we, and maybe we are in some ways, but, and we are in some ways, okay? But then we take today's standards and we apply it 200 years ago and we destroy the past by doing that. 
because we have no one that we can look back to then and say, you know what, that person was in their time and they made this and this and this mistake, but, but here's the good stuff they did. And that's part of my past, it's part of my heritage. You know, we need that, and you need that spiritually. And so contact your spiritual mother or father this week, okay? Just tell them you love them, thank them for everything they've done in your life, and it will give you more solid footing and anchor. All right, Father, we're thankful that you've given us ways to look at life that go beyond our, just our intellect. And you show us wisdom. Help us to remember what it means that we came to faith in Christ and that that, how that rocked our worlds. And any here who haven't yet received Jesus, Lord, just bring them to a point very soon that they will open their hearts to you, Jesus. Let us walk with you, Jesus, in a living, growing relationship each and every day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.